Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. From the time Russians first set foot in Alaska 300 years ago, they've had a strong influence on Alaska Native life. The Russian language and religion are still prevalent in many villages, incorporated into Native traditions. The transition was not always welcome or peaceful at the time. As Russia makes headlines for its invasion of a neighboring country, we'll take time to explore the history of Russian expansion in this country, right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. President Biden is signing the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act Wednesday at the White House. Native women's advocates and tribal leaders are celebrating the reauthorization to help protect women, children, and families in Indian country. Provisions in VAWA strengthen safety in Native communities, including a pilot program to allow some Alaska Native villages to exercise tribal jurisdiction over non-Indian offenders. Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. will be among attendees at the White House signing ceremony. Tribal leaders will discuss provisions next week during a virtual town hall. The Violence Against Women Act reauthorization was included in a bipartisan appropriations deal recently approved by Congress. The Blackfeet Nation Tuesday dropped its mask mandate for the reservation. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton has more. The Blankfeet Tribal Business Council, along with the reservation's incident commander, announced that masking on the reservation will be optional and that tribal offices will reopen to the public. According to the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Glacier County, which encompasses the Blankfeet Reservation, is experiencing medium transmission levels. At that level, the CDC says most people don't need to wear masks indoors but people who are vulnerable or immunocompromised should talk to their health care provider about it. On Tuesday, there were five cases of COVID-19 on the reservation, according to tribal health officials. The coronavirus has killed a little over 60 people on the reservation. In Columbia Falls, I'm Aaron Bolton. The Haynes Sheldon Museum in Haynes, Alaska, will feature a new exhibit of Clinkett Miniatures. It will showcase not only the artistic work, but also stories of Clinket people, forced to adapt to the rapidly changing times of the late 19th and 20th centuries. Corinne Smith with KHNS reports. The new exhibit will feature a variety of Clinket miniatures that includes small-scale totem poles and canoes and dolls. Items were both artistic and practical, says Museum Collections Coordinator Zachary James. There's some kind of small spiritual figures, like small talisman-like objects, amulets, and then halibut hooks, too. James is Clinkett with ancestry in the Chilkat Valley, Wrangell, and Stikine Basin. Within the old traditions, they would take these new ideas and make new things. The massive influx of missionaries and settlers to southeast Alaska, starting in the 1800s, decimated salmon runs and harmed traditional native livelihoods. Later came steamship tourism, so Clinket artists began producing miniatures for tourists. We have a lot of old photographs from steamship travelers, and it's almost always women will be selling their wares. And amongst the baskets that the women weaved, they would have um, 
small totem poles and small carvings that the men made. James says Tlingit people may have moved into small-scale art for sale as an act of economic survival, but at the same time, the style and craft was exquisite. And miniatures are sometimes the only surviving record of full-size totem poles. Because, you know, it's easy to store. It's lasted longer than the original, so that's the only record of that totem pole existing is in miniature version. James says the exhibit will showcase stories of the known carvers and provide the public an opportunity to learn more about Clinket people of the early 1900s in a time of cultural oppression and change. In Haines, I'm Corinne Smith. The exhibit opens in Alaska on March 25th. For more information, visit HanesMuseum.org. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department, providing complete convention and visitor planning services to Hispanic and Native American conventions. Information on convention and tourism services at ahcnm.org. Support from AmeriCorps. Members who serve in VISTA fight against poverty while earning money for college and gaining skills. Rewarding service opportunities are available in communities across America. Info at americorps.gov VISTA. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. By all accounts, Russians first set foot in Alaska in 1741. That's when the first expedition headed by Vitus Bering landed on the Aleutian Islands. That journey opened Russia's eyes to the natural resources Alaska had to offer, particularly fur from otters, seals, and foxes. And a flood of Russians followed, establishing colonies mostly on the western coast. They were known to brutalize and enslave the Native people. Russia laid claim to the land to the point the country felt entitled to sell Alaska to the United States in 1867. By that time, the native population was diminished by half through conflict and disease. Although it lasted just over a century, Russian occupation of Alaska continues to exert influence. As Russia is now in the midst of invading a neighboring sovereign nation, we're taking time to review the history and continuing legacy of the country among this country's native population. And we want to hear from you. What is your view of Russian influence in America? Please join our discussion by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us on the show today from Kodiak, Alaska, is Sarah Harrington. She's executive director of the Kodiak Historical Society and Kodiak History Museum. She's a Ludic and from the Shunak tribe in Kodiak. Welcome to Native America Calling, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Also on our show today from Maui, Hawaii, is Hal Spackman. He's the executive director of the Sitka History Museum. Welcome to Native America Calling as well, Hal. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate uh, you having, having me on. Hal, please start us off today. When did Russians first arrive 
in what is now the state of Alaska, and how did they get there? Well, there is some belief that uh, Vitas Bering wasn't the first uh, to, uh, Russian to see Alaska, and in fact, there were other less documented uh, discoveries, I should say, but when you, you know, I'm going to talk specifically about Sitka as opposed to Kodiak and different places. Let, let Sarah do that. But for Sitka, they really came in the late 1790s and established a, a trading post called Fort of Archangel in what's now, now uh, thought of as Old Sitka. And then in 1802, um, the Clinkett basically uh, destroyed that fort and. Uh, and the Russians reestablished a, a place in present Sitka in 1804 after a very uh, uh, a terrible battle, I should say, uh, and it was in which they displaced the Klinkets. Okay. Now, this history of Russian occupation in Alaska, um, one marked by brutality, by warfare, by enslavement— uh, can you talk a little bit more about these early interactions with Native people in Alaska and Russian colonists? Well, certainly there were, you know, some terrible, egregious uh, treatment of Alaska Native people, and um, and much of it was in the region where Sarah lives that uh, the Russians were especially uh, brutal. And they basically enslaved the Aleut, Alutic, Nagan, Supiak people to, to do, do the bedding for them. And um, that was to, you know, extrapolate um, the sea otters, the other furs from, from Alaska, and to make a profit from it. And so when you literally look at what the Russians did, it was a matter of uh, how can we you know, take advantage of the resources in North America with a limited number of people from Russia and still make a profit. And that's how they viewed things. And so they used the Alaska Native people, and they didn't care how, you know, the, the effects of those people, especially early on. And then it got better once the Russian Orthodox Church arrived. But certainly it was a, a terrible time in Alaska Native history. Well, thanks, Hal. Sarah, uh, I, want, I want to ask you, when did Russians first appear in, in the Kodiak area, and what was that initial contact like? Sure. Um, well, the Russians first arrived in Kodiak in around eight, uh, 1763 um, when Glotov came and wintered in Kodiak, um, and that was really the first point of contact uh, where attacks were organized against uh, the Aleutic people. And slowly from that point, um, Kodiak became really the epicenter, I think, of, of Russian history and colonization in Alaska. Um, as the settlement grew and stabilized in Kodiak, um, it was moved. Uh, the headquarters was established in what's currently Kodiak, the city of Kodiak in 1792. But that was after years of, um, you know, as years of difficulty, um, to put it lightly, between the Aleutic people and the Russians. Um, and most famously, I think in, in 1784, 
Um, Shalikov landed at Three Saints Bay in Kodiak, which we really recognize as a significant point where there was a um, a massacre against Aleutic people, um, men, women, and children who had gathered for safety on Refuge Rock, which is um, kind of offset from uh, the primary island of Kodiak. Um, and at that point, we kind of recognized that the Russians had broken the back of the Aleutic people, um, enslaving them, um, subjugating them to you know all kinds of terrible difficulties, removing their families. Um, and so, yeah, Kodiak's story is, is different than Sitka's, not only in terms of timeline, but also in terms of the impact of colonization um, in our community that still exists today. And this colonization, again, enslavement, uh, so much brutality, what was the, the impact overall on Alaska Native culture? It's a great question, and I think that um, that different communities would speak to that differently. In Kodiak, uh, you know, what, what happened was the Aleutic people really became a Creole community that was half Aleutic and half Russian. And, and today we still really identify with that legacy. Um, there are uh, Russian Orthodox churches here where many of our Aleutic members of the community still go um, because there was um, protection that came from the Russian Orthodox missionaries um, who helped to kind of assume responsibility of the education and the spiritual health of the Aleutic people, preserving their language in a written format for the first time. Um, but of course, that's not to undermine um, the incredible hardship and trauma that the Aleutic people and culture endured um, during these during these centuries of, of colonization. And and we work very hard today to revitalize that, um, you know, our songs and our language and different parts of our culture that have been lost. So, Sarah, it sounds like there are many Alaska Native people who've made peace with this uh, Russian history and this lineage, uh, even proud of it. Is that an accurate way to think of it? Um, I, I agree that we've made peace in some ways, but I also think that it's very important to recognize that the generational trauma that our community still experiences today comes from kind of um, almost a reckoning with the trauma that was faced, you know, so many years ago. And so, um, you know, if you look back, um, my grandmother, for example, identified as Russian, and she was embarrassed to be um, seen as Alaska Native. Um, here in the Orpheum Theater in Kodiak, our local movie theater, she was forced to sit in the upstairs um, which was a place for natives and, and other uh, communities of color here. Um, and so, you know, I think as times change, our view and our identity shifts as well. Um, but I think that it would be pretty generous to say that we've made peace in a very health, healthy way. I think we're still really coming to terms with the trauma that we still face in terms of, you know, are we Aleutic enough? What is left of our Aleutic culture? Um, these are things that my generation still struggle with in terms of how can we really take ownership and pride um, and work to revitalize our culture in a way um, that feels necessary to decolonize our community. 
Okay. Sir, can you talk more about what was the Russian motivation for uh, colonizing Alaska and moving, making this uh, move into North America at that time, 300 years ago? Sure. Well, as Hal mentioned, resources were the driver. Um, and in Kodiak, the primary resource that was extremely valuable to the Russians was sea otter furs. And those are referred to sometimes as soft gold because they were incredibly valuable. Um, we do have some documentation that shows that a single sea otter fur was worth about $40,000 in today's um, in today's currency. So, you know, these were incredibly precious, which which kind of lead to a better understanding of, of why there was this um, intense um, focus on 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 hunting and uh, taking over the Aleutic culture and, and forcing Aleutic hunters to go out hunting for, for sea otters. And it had an incredible impact on the way that the Aleutic people lived their lives as well. Um, instead of uh, living a migratory pattern and moving along uh, based on, on um, harvesting resources in different places at different times of the year, the Russians forced the Aleutic people to stay in um, permanent camps, um, enslaved the Aleutic hunters, the men, separated the women and children, um, and there were a lot Sarah, of shifts that happened along that as well. Sure. And Sarah, I'm going to go ahead and give you a chance to finish those thoughts, but we do have to take just a short break here. So, uh, folks, if you are listening today, please give us a call with any questions, 1-800-996-2848. We're going to be back right after this short break. Some Native Americans have long-standing connections to the country of Ireland. Despite cultural differences, there are parallels among the people. There is a new musical production that celebrates that connection. For St. Patrick's Day, we'll discuss the Transcontinental Association on the next Native America Calling.
This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. What do you know about Russian colonization of Alaska dating back three centuries? What does that influence mean today? Give us a call. Join the conversation. The number 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Sarah, before we went to break, you were talking about what Russian occupation looked like in the Kodiak region of Alaska. Please continue your thoughts. Sure. Um, I was just speaking to the fact that um, the colonization really changed Aleutic culture. Um, as a, a seafaring culture who really relies primarily on marine resources, we started to see effects like um, changes to our uh, boats. So we use a kayak um, and they went from a one or two hold ship to three where a Russian colonizer or um, or uh, would go out with the Aleutic people and would stay with them to make sure that they were doing their work to hunt the sea otter furs, to bring in these resources for, um, for, for gain by Russians and with little payback to the Aleutic people. I think it's also worth mentioning here, too, that Aleutic is a term um, for a community that has changed over some time. So elders used to sometimes identify it as Aleut, as a lutic, and a more common and, and um, correct term that we use now is sukhviak, which means uh, the real people. And all of these identifiers that we've used in our community have changed over the years as we start to reclaim our cultural identity here in Kodiak. Sir, do you know about how many Native people were living in Alaska at the time of Russian contact? That's a, that's a great question. I'm not sure if Hal knows the answer to that. I could look into it a little bit here quickly. Okay. Well, let me, Hal, do you know about how many uh, Alaska Native people were living in the region when Russia uh, contacted the continent 300 years ago? There's no definite numbers that I'm aware of. I mean, it was literally in the thousands of people, but, um, you know, I think the thing that's important to understand when you think about Russian colonization of, of Alaska, is the sheer size of Alaska. And most people really can't comprehend how big Alaska is and the distances between places. And so the more important question probably might be how many Russians were there. It was just literally hundreds, and that's it. And so these multitude of Alaska people and vibrant cultures that were there were were in the thousands and tens of thousands. And um, the Russians knew that they could not colonize such a big area without the help of those people. And they chose a rather brutal way of, a terrible way of, of capitalizing on those people, but they never would have survived without the, the native people. And... Um, mm -hmm. And that, I think, is very important because the Russians kind of, they came here with the sole idea, we're going to extract as many resources as we can, and we're not here to try to establish, um, you know, a permanency like on the eastern coast of the United States. It was, let's get a system that allows us to harvest the furs and get them to China and Russia and different markets. Okay. Hal, thank you. And uh, my producer just handed me a note. Uh, apparently, approximately 100,000 Alaska Natives at the time of Russian contact 
were living there, and approximately 17,000 lived on the Aleutian Islands. And Hal, you mentioned that Russians didn't occupy Alaska in large numbers. In fact, even at the peak of what we might call this Alaskan-Russian empire, there were only about 800 Russians that were living in these settlements. And you mentioned that disease, massacre, and conflict were these huge, huge factors in in how they were able to maintain this foothold. But um, what were some other ways that they were able to to hang on to this uh, this these colonies, these settlements uh, among these many Alaskan people. Again, it's it's remarkable. Fewer than a thousand Russians living in these settlements, even at the height of of this period of their colonization. I, I think I kind of mentioned the Russians learned soon that they couldn't do this by themselves, and so they had to help have the help of the the native people. And so, I'll give an example. They bought uh, deer and fish and different wild game from the, the Shlinket people. Uh, they used the uh, Unagin and Sufiak hunters to harvest the animals, the, the sea otters and things like that. And they literally brought them to Sitka, you know, um, to do that, which is, I think is a trap in its own right. And, and so is what they did is they developed this symbiotic um, relationship with the native people in order to, I guess, use the word succeed or with their goals. And they did, they had just very little, uh, recognition of what it was doing to the culture and the people. And I, is like Sarah mentioned, the church changed that a little bit, but certainly it was a system of let's get in, let's you know, take as much as we can, make as much money as we can, and then not worry about all the other things like establishing settlements. Now, other than for, you mentioned... for survival. Okay. And Hal, I, I know it was mentioned earlier on, on the show that the Tlingits were capable warriors. And I'm interested to know, um, what were these efforts uh, by Alaska Native people uh, with regard to resisting these um, these Russian occupiers? Well, there were numerous incidents of, of not just um, uh, the Battle of Sitka is what it was called in 1804, in which uh, Lysiansky just happened to be in town with the Neve after uh, Baranov came back and was going to extract revenge for the 17 or the 1802 massacre of the fort of St. Michael or Archangel, Archangel. and um and that was a, a, a siege and a battle, and the Clinket people have a well-documented uh, march after they deserted that fort. And they continued to, uh, I guess, have incidents with the Russians and the Aleut uh, hunters, both, in trying to um, exert their dominance of the region because the Clinket people had a very sophisticated culture and trade and uh, lifestyle of, of this this area that was quite remarkable. And the Russians, uh, there is no way they were going to come in and destroy that with just so few people. Mm-hmm. 
Well, folks, if you've got a question or a comment, we're having a fascinating discussion on the Russian occupation of Alaska that started about 300 years ago. So give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We've got two guests on our show today, Sarah Harrington with the Kodiak Historical Society and Hal Spackman, who is the executive director of the Sitka History Museum. And Sarah, I'd like to ask you, did Russians venture far into the interior of Alaska, or did they primarily stick to the Aleutian Islands and the western coast? It's my understanding that it was largely coastal, that there were the resources that they sought. Um, the sea otter furs, as we mentioned, were so incredibly value, valuable that they had a, a pretty uh, clear focus on extracting those resources. And when did the Russians finally leave Alaska and why? Hello? I guess I could answer oh, that yeah, question sorry. if you want me to. Oh, that's okay. Go ahead. Go ahead, Hal. Okay. Well, yeah, by, that, by the time of uh, the Russians actually left Alaska in 1867, um, the the capital of the or the center of the Russian American company and Russia was in Sitka. And um, I think it's, there's a number of things that were going on. First of all, they had started to deplete the, uh, the source of the furs. Uh, they overhunted them to the point that um, it was becoming less and less profitable. The other point that a lot of people forget is that America and England um, had this great mariner society, whereas Russia, Russian is is not known for being a great uh, mariner society. In fact, many of their sea captains were not even Russians; they were Finns and Danes and different different nationalities. But England and America were starting to snoop around in, in, in this neck of the woods, and they were afraid, actually, that they, they were going to lose Alaska to England in particular. And they were enemies of England, and they knew that they couldn't hold it much longer. And so I think that that was a, a, a one, one of the main reasons they decided to sell. It's like, well, let's just get some money out of it because we hate England more than we – don't like America. So they sold to America and they tried to sell in the 1850s, but with the Civil War coming on in America, the Americans said, no, we don't, we're not interested right now. And so there's a number of things. It's depletion of resources and it's also the, the idea that, hey, we're not making money out there and we're probably going to lose it anyway to England and we don't want that to happen. Okay. Now, it's interesting to note, too, that the narrowest distance between mainland Russia and mainland Alaska is less than 60 miles. So, yeah, obviously, they weren't these great maritime <laughs> sailors. It wasn't like trudging across the whole Atlantic or a, a large swath of the Pacific. It was a pretty short jaunt, apparently, from uh, from Russia to Alaska. I I'm curious, how how did the Russians um, have propriety or enough cash to, to you know, claim you know sell Alaska. Where was what was the the basis of that um, justification that they had the right to sell that that land? Well, the the Clinkett people in particular, and the Alaska Native people, would just 
dispute that greatly, that the, the, the Klinkets, I think, believe that the Russians were only selling their little area of the fort in Sitka. And uh, it was like they had no idea that they were selling the entirety of Alaska. But, you know, to come back to your, your point about the distances, even though they're close in some places, the the true sailings were thousands of miles. And and, um, and so it's easy to look at, hey, we're close together, but that's not the reality of it. Most of it was long distances. But anyway, um, I don't think that any of the Alaska Native people thought that Russia had the right to sell. And it was just that whole colonization time in which people, if you stuck a flag or a procession plate on a place, it belonged to a European power. And and that's the, the heart of the, the matter is that. That's how they, the, the European powers felt. Well, thanks for that clarification on the distance that these Russian sailors had to travel to reach uh, the North American continent, specifically Alaska. Now, Hal, I'm curious, how is um, Sitka and the historical society uh, coming to terms with this harsh and violent colonization that uh, these tactics used by, by Russians on indigenous people? I can, use, I can give you a great example of when the Black Lives Matter movement uh, uh, gained steam in America, uh, it transcended to Alaska. And we have a statue, or we had a statue of Alexander, Alexander Baranov right in front of our town uh, center. And Baranov uh, was the most noteworthy figure of the Russian um, the colonization of Alaska. And a merchant, uh, a number of years back in the early 80s, gave that to the city because it was a beautiful piece of art. Well, it's been there, but it's been also a uh, point of contention for the Alaska Native people, the Clinkets in particular, because one, put it, one Clinket person put it very well. Every time we go into our town hall, the Centennial Building, we have to look at a statue of a person who colonized us. And most people don't understand the true nature of colonization and how uh, the effects of it from a cultural uh, and just, uh, you know, subjugation of people. And, and so we had this huge community discussion and that we involved scholars, we involved Clinket people, Native people, and we said, what can we do with this statue? Or should we just throw it in the ocean like many places are doing or bury them or what? And so the, this committee said, well, the most important thing we can do is educate people about colonization. And so they chose to put it in our museum. And that way we could describe the effects of what the Russian colonization was, there's the impacts on the people. And so people can start to get an understanding of history as opposed to just this kind of traditional history that we have where it's like, oh boy, these people came and they did all good and they made a place to live. And that's completely opposite of what the reality was. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting. And, um, how, when, um, you know, considering these issues in light of, of Sitka and Kodiak and some of these other areas, uh, any other instances of, of Russian occupation in other parts of Alaska that you'd like to talk about or, or share any insights? Uh, 
Well, one I could share is that there is an expression in Sitka and throughout much of Alaska, when the tide is out, the table is set because the richness of the uh, environment here. But if you don't know how to use that environment, you're going to starve. Well, the Clinket people in particular of this area now, you know, Sarah could speak about her area, but they have learned to, to flourish. But for the first uh, few years, the Russians were starving. And then so they had to reach out and find different places to to gain the type of food that they were used to. And so they went as far as California and established a colony in California, Fort Ross, as Verano set some uh, people out to do that. And, and so they kind of went down the coast of Alaska to California and they, and Brana even wanted to establish a colony in Hawaii. And he tried very hard to do that. So they were reaching out much further along the coast than people can imagine. And uh, they set up little tiny posts throughout Southeast Alaska, but the Clinket people were very, uh, uh, I should say vigilant and not letting them have too many, <laughs> strongholds. Understood. Understood. In 1867, the United States and Russia signed a treaty in which Tsar Alexander II ceded Alaska to the United States. It's often referred to as the Alaska Purchase, and the U.S. paid $7.2 million for land, which consisted of more than 586,000 square miles. That's about $113 million when adjusted into today's dollars which is less than an average Powerball jackpot. We've got to take a quick break. You're listening to Native America Calling. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strongheart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Strongheart's Native Helpline.
Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. More than 300 years since Russia first set foot on Alaska's shores, Russian culture still exerts influence among Alaska Native people. Let us know what you think. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's, of course, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Sarah, the, the Native perspective of Russian settlement, is that taught in schools? Um, you know, I would say that there is a focus in Kodiak on revitalization of the Aleutic culture, um, which includes some history of um, Russian colonization here locally. But I would say that the emphasis is more on um, reviving stories, um, songs, dance, the language, um, as opposed to uh, specifically focusing on um, Russian colonization. There are at different grade levels uh, local history efforts that we participate in and, and are so happy to support. But um, I think our focus here is mostly on reclaiming our identity as a Native people. Okay. Well, folks, we have a caller on the line. She, It's Eva listening in California. Eva, you're on Native America Calling. Hi. Um, I uh, would have just left a message. But anyway, I wanted to say that Russia, um, please um, maybe extend another show into how they proceeded into California a third of the way into what is now Sonoma County, establishing a Fort Ross and um, completely and permanently displacing the Native people that lived right there for their fort and um, extincting our waters here, where they still exist to the south, where they weren't able to get to down that far. And we have a Russian river here and a Sebastopol inland, and um, the Native people were used in the same way that... uh, they were up there. <laughs> well, Eva, thank you so much for those comments regarding uh, Russian occupation in, in Fort Ross, which is only about 90 miles north of San Francisco Bay. Uh, Sarah, do you have any more um, knowledge or insights to share about the Russian colonization that occurred there in, in California? Um, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of outside of my scope to speak to what happened in California. I, I do feel like it's worth kind of recognizing that there's still a lot of work to be done to understand uh, the scope of impact of colonization kind of in, in any of these places. I know that earlier in the conversation we were talking about what the Native population was in Alaska um, and, and how it changed as a result of, of occupation by the Russians, you know, and, and it's something that we still very actively are researching and trying to, to put together a fuller picture. Um, I think that um, it was shared that there was something like around 17,000 Aleutic people in this area, but I know that the Aleutic Museum has still been working on this. And, and the figures really kind of are, are, can be drastically different. I think one of the, the recent um, publications they've shared shows that it was more like 8,000 people um, around uh, 1750. And so there's a lot of work to be done here. Um, and the perspectives between the Native and the Russians are very are, are incredibly variable. Um, and a lot of that is due to the fact that, you know, the Aleutic people, I can only speak for us, I feel like 
you know, we're still working on um, preserving our history um, because we didn't have a written language until the arrival of the Russian Orthodox missionaries. There was a lot of work to be done to understand uh, who we were and, and where we were in that sense as it changed as well. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad that you, you brought us together today, Sean. Well, appreciate it. Yeah, I, I think it is too. And you mentioned the Russian Orthodox Church. And um, what is uh, the current relationship between Alaska Natives and the Russian Orthodox Church? Can you talk about that more, Sarah? I would say that it's very warm. Um, I know that uh, there are a lot of people in our community who identify as Alutic who go to the Russian Orthodox Church every Sunday and find a lot of healing um, there and, and identity as well, because it did shape our community for so many years. Um, and I mentioned earlier in the show uh, that the Russian Orthodox missionaries were really kind of um, charged with this sense of responsibility to protect the allergic people in recognition of the incredible hardship and trauma they faced during colonization. Um, and so education, um, I mentioned that the uh, Russian Orthodox missionaries were the first to, to get a Luchik down into a written language. Um, and so there is a sense of protection that comes along with um, the Russian Orthodox missionaries in particular that is greatly in contrast to, um, to colonization here. It's something that I think that we, we in Kodiak, um, are, you know, we have one foot in each category, you know, really in terms of revitalizing our culture and, and focusing on what are our stories and understanding our, our history better. Um, but today, I, I think that it is very fair to say that, that there is a love and a sense of protection and, and guidance that comes from the Russian Orthodox Church specifically. Mm -hmm. So we have another caller, Yulili, listening on KDLG in Bristol Bay, Alaska. Yulili, you're on the line. Thank you. Um, I was at the Russian Um, Oh, I just remembered. I thought they were up on the northern part of Alaska, this place we call Alaska, and the Americans were on the lower part. And the Russians were the ones that translated... Uh, who was that guy? Um, Benjamin in English. Benjamin, I think his name is Benjamin. He was the one that translated the New Testament into Yupik. And I read that they only that that the Russians only sold the Russian part of their post, that um, Russian American post, now called the AC. And that was the only thing that they sold. And then, and um, other proof is that the presidents and leaders of Spain, which was in South Central America, and the Canadians were run by the French and the uh, Americans. They had a meeting that they were going to buy resources from Alaska, and said they were the own, true owners. I guess they were having some stocks with Russia. But um, I really wanted to know. I guess I guess I was wrong. But um. 
the elders always said they never, our ancestors always said they never sold this land, they never got the money, and they would never consent to selling something that they believe is a spiritual creator's ownership and stuff. And we know that um, the Russians, I read that the Russians, the University of Fairbanks, that um, the Russians were upset that Americans would bring alcohol to the people because they were fur hunters. And what part, which part of, which part of America, which part of Alaska were Americans at? It was just both of them, wasn't it? Because for the two posts, one in Sitka and the other one was what? I thought it was Dutch Harbor. Okay. Uh, thank you for that comment. And that's an interesting um thought there about with regard to Russian concern about Americans bringing alcohol. And I think, I think we could sum this question up with regard to where were these American colonizers and where were the Russian colonizers in Alaska? Hal, can you, can you speak to that? Yeah, I can, I can definitely speak to that. Um, once it's important to remember that much of the goods that came and trade that happened in Russian America was a result of interactions with English and American sea captains. And even though the Tsar forbade that, it was out of, real, out of the survival they had to do that. So that said, once um, Russia sold, I guess if you want to use that word, Alaska to America, the Americans came in with the same idea. How can we exploit this? amazing land out there and they soon got there and they did they didn't realize how big it was and all these people who came from america initially to exploit alaska found uh, a lot of failure and so many of those people left right after they came and it wasn't until later that uh, you know the discovery of gold of exploration inland and in, in, in the greater numbers uh, fishing and things like that, that the Americans truly came into Alaska. But there for a long time, uh, it remained a very small blurb on the the world scheme of things. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, once Americans were just as guilty of exploitation as the Russians were initially. Well, we have another caller, Melvin. And he's listening on KZYK in Santee, Nebraska. Melvin, you're on Native America Calling. Well, I just, the man just kind of answered my, my question. You know, the amount of fish coming through the Bering Strait around Alaska is an incredible amount of uh, revenue coming into America. From that, uh, are the Clankets getting any of that money? Okay, thanks for that question, Melvin. And um, I'd, I'd like either Sarah or Hal. Do you, you know about with regard to um, royalties or income that Clankets uh, generate from from fishing in that region along the Bering Strait there, that uh, or the Bering region that Melvin just mentioned? Might be a little bit out of our wheel well for this show. Not sure. Well, I can't. I can't talk about the Bering region and the Donut Hole. It's, it's called. Sarah might know more about it. But the Clinket people 
per se do not get revenues from fishing taxes. And so many Clinket people are fishermen. Their families are involved in it or in one way or another. And so they, some of them make their livelihood from it, but uh, they don't get payments directly from the fishing in the Bering Sea. The state does. And, you know, all of us kind of benefit by that, but um, you know, maybe there's some of the uh, Alutic and Aleut people in, in Sarah's region who, who do, I'm not aware. Sarah, do you want to chime in on Melvin's question? Sure. You know, this this would be a beautiful segue to discussion about ANCSA and ANILCA. Um, but no, I can just kind of echo House comments that the way that their the distribution of resources took place in Alaska, that it wasn't that there aren't funds that go directly to um, Native people for these resources today. Uh, many are, uh, share, uh, excuse me, uh, permit holders for fishing, or they have fishing quota that they pursue. But that's separate than um, corporate, uh, regional, or um, village corporations' influence in terms of uh, resource allocation. Okay, understood. And we are having such a great conversation and so many tangents, so many twists and turns. I think we're just going to have to do some more of these. Uh, these shows about um, some of these early years of of Alaskan um, history and, and some of these colonization issues with regard to Russians and Americans as well. So again, wonderful conversation. I think we have time for just one more caller here. We have Michael, and he is listening in Jemez, Pueblo, New Mexico on KUNM. Michael, uh, if you could keep your question pretty brief, appreciate it. All right. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, uh, this is, this whole discussion just it reminds me of all of the colonization of Turtle Island and their different uh, zones uh, around Turtle Island and all the movies that have been made about these colonizations. And what brings to mind is that the the the, the non people of this area from Europe or wherever they came from, even they were said to come from China, they, 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 didn't, they didn't understand our religion, they didn't understand our culture, so they, they called us savages and until that, and uh, they, that's how they, they treated us as savages until they learned that we were praying to the same God, you know, it, it's just, it, 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 it just mind-boggling that uh, the stupidity that went on back then and, and still does sometimes today. Thanks. Well, thank you, Michael, for that for that comment. And we are going to have to wrap up the show here shortly, but I'd like to give Sarah the last word. And let's tie this into current events and what's happening in Ukraine, because again, this connection with Russia and their history of um, occupation of sovereign nations and of uh, foreign lands. So, Sarah, any any. Um, Closing comments that you have in, in about the next minute and a half with regard to, I mean, I mean what, what do you, what do you, how do, how do, on a personal level, how do you think um, many Alaskan Native people in, in your area feel now that we're seeing Russia um, invading another country uh, and imposing some of the same harsh uh, practices that, that your people experienced 300 years ago? I'm going to give you the last word there, Sarah. 
Sure. Well, of course, I think we all see those memes in Alaska, the, the um, surprised face with what's happening in regards to, to Russia and Ukraine and, and knowing our history here in Alaska. But, it, but in Kodiak, you know, we really see this region as an international crossroads. And all of these stories are so connected. Um, the building that I'm in today, the oldest building in Alaska, brings uh, Finnish elements in terms of the construction of the building. Um, there are so many ways in which our stories overlap and that we are working to understand so that we can have better perspective on today's issues and be able to move forward kind of um, in a heart-led way, but with, with better understanding of what the facts are that got us here today. Um, I just want to say thank you for, for having us on. It's, it's been really a, a wonderful experience, and it's, I'm going to continue to think about this for the rest of the day. It's, it's a great start. We've now reached the end of the hour, and that's all the time we have for today's show. I do want to thank our guests, Hal Spackman and Sarah Harrington, for a stimulating conversation on the history of Russian colonization in North America and its lasting influence on Alaska Native peoples. We're back tomorrow with another awesome live show planned. It's St. Patrick's Day, and we'll explore the parallels between Ireland and Native Americans. I hope you can join us. I'm Sean Spruce. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Looking to get your high school diploma? Southwestern Indian Polytechnic Institute offers Native Americans ages 18 or older training and preparation courses for the high school equivalency diplomas in person and online beginning May 4th. All attendance and testing fees for this program are waived and resources will be available to help with supplies and living expenses. Space is limited. Application deadline is April 8th. More by calling 505-382-4287 or at sipi.edu. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.